welcome to Be Dead Source, your home for Area 52. My name's Nathan, your most spacey host. My name's Andy, your little green host. And I'm Pat, your Naruto running host. <laughs> nice. I understood that reference. I don't know what Naruto is, but I do know the reference anyway. There you go. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm excited about this week's ep. Um, should we do a how is our week first and then do our intro into the app? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Sure. Let's do exactly that. That's what I need. Let's do that. Let's do exactly that. You little fuck. Okay. Uh, what do you guys have up? Um, Man. well, so my last week has been pretty good. I'm more excited about this upcoming week. As I might have mentioned to our D&D group, um, I am going to be going out on a flight on a prop plane. But who's going to fly it, kid? You? You bet I could. I'm not such a bad pilot myself. I'm going to sit here and listen. Flown by my brother, my stepbrother, who is a pilot and a uh, actually a trainer of pilots. He's like a teacher. Uh, he teaches courses in flight. And um, we're going to go out and fly a prop plane, which is super exciting for me. I mean, I've flown in commercial airlines before, but I've never actually flown in a prop plane. Um, so, I mean, it's, I'm looking forward to that immensely. That's cool. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. And if Are I can just gonna... say, like, super proud of him that... Yeah, you know, that's amazing. He, he, he yeah. has this, like, really, really cool job and... um is successful and i'm just super happy for him uh besides that he's a great guy so just love him to death so yeah just really happy to be able to spend some time with him and do something that's like <laughs> probably the coolest thing i'll do this year i mean besides would you talk to our guest would you consider jumping from the airplane with a parachute Mm. No, 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 no. He no. he asked me if <laughs> if we wanted to do some like uh aerial maneuvers and I was like, uh we'll have to see about that. I get I get motion sickness, like I don't really do well on roller coasters and stuff, so um Oh, this is gonna be fun. We're, we'll have to test are you, the Are waters. we gonna get a reaction video? Can we get a video of you going yeah. up in this prop plane? <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I'll see, like, I probably won't film the whole thing, but you might get, like, five minutes or something of, of me <laughs> being sick or throwing up. <laughs> How's your brother vis-a-vis pranks? Because it seems like a situation that would be, like, perfect for that. I don't think that you, you, uh, want to do any sort of pranks on the person who, who, uh, your life is completely and 100% in their hands. Well, but oh, perhaps no, I'm... you should be wary of pranks from him. Exactly. Oh, that's fine. That's what I'm saying. Yes, I'm saying him doing aerial pranks on you because you're a very captive audience at that point, especially <laughs> since we know you won't have a parachute. Well, fortunately, this episode won't go up before then, um, nor do I think he really listens to the episodes, but... Yeah, I mean, that's totally possible, and I'm accepting that with open arms. Like, if he wants to pull a barrel roll or a 360 or anything like that, like, um, I, I think what he said, I actually asked about barrel rolls. Uh, I think this particular plane is not really capable of doing a barrel roll. Um, not with but, that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, if he, if he wants to pull something, uh, I am, 
I am accepting of whatever uh, comes my way. So should be fun. Right on. Uh, not much from me, so I'll just get it out of the way. It's been a fairly, like, chill week. Um, we got our, our Christmas day got delayed because Caitlin tested positive for COVID. So, uh, we just finished making, having our rain check Christmases, which was enjoyable and my nieces are adorable. So that's all I really have to report. I think my, yes, I'm, uh, here's what I'm going to talk about. It could very easily fall under a precious moment, but no, we're going to do it here at the top. I got to spend a little time with Lexi and Nicole and my mom and my nephews just before Christmas, and that was really nice. But what I would like to talk about is I got my younger nephew, Milo, a really soft stuffed elephant that he seems to like. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what I got my older nephew, Frankie, for Christmas. And it is a product called uh, Fart Ninja. (laughs) And what the Fart Ninja does is it has a little motion sensor in its forehead. And whenever anybody walks past it, it does one of, I believe, 14 distinct fart noises. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Or, Or... very, very, like, very softly in a very ASMR way, it says, Fart Ninjas. And it just whispers Fart Ninjas at you. And I love it. So that's what I got Frankie. And he's apparently been taking it around the house. Because they, they say, oh, this is supposed to be a game. So you take it around the house and you, like, put it places. And then when your parents walk by, they hear a fart. And it's hilarious. <laughs> And so, like, I explained that to Frankie, like, you could totally do this. Check out these all-new fart ninjas. Hide your ninja to prank anyone nearby. And then apparently he, he's he been doing that. Or I think right now Lexi was telling me it's in the kitchen. And so whenever you walk past to get a snack or the dozen times you have to walk past it to, like, actually make a meal... Oh, uh, you just hear it. <laughs> That's amazing. And it doesn't uh, release any stink gas or anything like that. No, but the, no, but not, the noise not is yet. amazing enough. But I will say this is generation one, so who knows what generation three or four will be like. I will True. also say I got uh one version. There are ten distinct fart ninjas, I think each with their own sounds, oh, and wow. uh two fart ninja XLs, which include a remote control, so you can play pranks. According to the commercial I found on your older sister, um, so I <laughs> yes, Fart like Ninja, yes, and so uh, it it served two purposes. Frankie loves it. I think Milo gets whatever enjoyment you can get out of a fart sound, which is great. And Lexi hates it. So like, just a win win <laughs> all nice. around. That's well, amazing. and and a potential possible third purpose of. Getting us a new sponsorship, Fart Ninjas. Fart Ninjas, hit me Looking up. your way. I am definitely going to buy the other nine at some point for my nephews. <laughs> uh, and the XLs. I mean, there's always next Christmas, so I'm very excited. Well, I'll certainly, uh, when I go up there, if I see any unidentified flying objects or UAPs, I will let you guys know. Uh, <laughs> what? 
up up we, in the. I I should have gone third, I guess, for that. For yeah, that you really you really didn't mess that up. Yeah. But Fart Ninjas. <laughs> um, can we talk about Larry for a second? Because I love Larry. Larry yeah. is a friend of the pod. Yeah. So Larry Hancock and came on and talked about Martin Luther King Jr. Ass- on well, his, a previous episode with us. Right. Specifically his assassination. Specifically uh, his it, assassination. But <laughs> it turns out that he's very into another topic, and that's uh, UFOs. And he was nice enough to spend some time with us, so we'll cut to that interview. Yeah, <laughs> we really appreciate you, Larry. It's good to see you. We've been looking forward to this so much. It's good to be back. It is. <laughs> How have you been? Oh, I've been doing fine. We've, we've, everyone, well, right here, we've been healthy. Uh, we've been through all of that. Uh, the holidays were okay. Uh, a little quiet, but not bad. And, uh, at, at this stage, after two years, that's that's really pretty good <laughs> the, yeah the, uh, like the criteria of the bar has been lowered you know right, exactly like, <laughs> you all yeah. boosted up oh we are we've had yeah this that was pretty much our only social life this last year was getting vaccinations really. <laughs> uh, we're good it is good i have been i've been spending a lot of time on this subject i guess we talked before a fact that i'm i'm belong to the scu group and we've been doing a lot of project work and so i've been probably more involved with ufo study type stuff for the last year than i have since i wrote the book basically oh wow well it sounds like it's time for a new book (laughs) oh heavens (laughs) you know not after publishing a dozen books writing a book doesn't daunt me really that's okay Finding a publisher and getting a book done and in print has just become, you know, traumatic. Uh, <laughs> it, it's so the thought of another book is, is I don't think is going to happen from that aspect, not from yeah. the content side. I, I expect that we will be publishing a lot of our work as studies. You, know, <laughs> you can as, just start, a, you can just start getting all your research out there as TikToks. Just 45 seconds at a time, do some dancing. Yeah. Hey, everyone loves a good dance. Uh, I think, uh, I think my wife would give you some insight on that. And it would be like anything that he tries to convey with his dancing. Don't (laughs) like, okay. She uses the term rhythm impaired and she's correct. There you go. Well, why don't I kick us off here? Sure. So, I mean, Kind of the obvious first layer question, what got you into UFO research originally? I've I've been interested in the subject, quite frankly, since about 1964, 1965. I was interested in it as a teenager. We had a lot of activity going on in the 64, 65 period. So it was in the newspapers a lot uh, uh, through 66. We had... I did not see anything myself, but we had incidents here in, in Oklahoma and, you know, there were things going on. You talk to people that had seen things and that, that got my interest. Um, and, but it, for a period of time while I was in college, I really didn't do much, but just read about it. Uh, afterwards in the in the seventies, I did join NICAP. Uh, I joined APRO. 
Uh, I did a little bit of APRO field investigation, a couple of minor incidents, and then the kind of the career got in the way or took over basically after I got out of the Air Force. And I really didn't return to it until about seven or eight years ago. You know, the Nimitz thing, the, the, the news about new studies. And that's when I really got back and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I never did before, which is to take a really in-depth look at this. That's great. Do you mind going over some of the acronyms or the groups that you're involved in, just for people who aren't uh, familiar? Uh, Absolutely. I I belong. uh, APRO was the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. uh, And it was it was actually founded by the Lorenzans. uh, When I joined, it was headquartered in Arizona. Uh, APO or had a lot of a lot of people out in the field. They did some really interesting newsletters, uh, but it it was really a pretty much a personal group driven by kind of the passions of the founders. NICAP, the National Investigative Organization, was something a good bit different. It was organized out of Washington D.C. It had some people that had been in government some uh some pretty high fit profile people uh former former officials former agency people and it was its goal really was to force the government to take a serious look at it uh it's national investigations committee for area phenomena um but you know along with that it did set up a national scope of investigators and took reports and and actually although APRO f- faded away over the years uh a lot of its material went elsewhere NICAP uh still stayed stayed in in place long enough we actually you can find a nicap.org website and find a lot of information there uh, about the group about the work it did about its chronologies, which actually collected a, a ton of reports year by year over the decades. Uh, so that is still with us. NICAP is still with us. Uh, the cur- Currently, the group that I'm active with at the moment is the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, uh, and you can find it at scu.org. Um, and it it is a much smaller group, and it's been, it really is towards uh, – different types of, of well-defined scientific studies, whether they be technology-oriented, uh, historically-oriented, uh, social studies, but uh, a much smaller group with a, a very tightly-focused scientific orientation. Well, so I, I'm super interested in this uh, USS Nimitz stuff, the USS Theodore Roosevelt stuff. Um one of the questions that we wanted to get into is um, like, what are the expectations of like, what sort of proof do we have? Like, what can we reasonably expect to say about uh, UAPs or UFOs? Like we don't necessarily have uh, proof of little green men yet. Do we? No, we, we most definitely don't have that, but what we can expect to do, I mean, what we can expect to do with the data that we have, which from the Navy incidents, we do have 
some camera data. We have some infrared imaging data. We have a certain amount of technical data that can be used to essentially study two things. And that is the movement of the objects, the UAPs, and, and ask the question of whether or not that's anomalous in regard to known technology. And actually, interestingly enough, the construction of the UAPs, because once you dig into, once you get a handle on the movement, especially the acceleration, the G-force loading, that sort of thing, then you can go back and say, okay, look, I, first of all, uh, we don't have anything that would even conceivably give you that kind of acceleration, but if we did, we don't have any materials that could withstand it at the size this object was or these objects are, you know, other than a purely solid artillery shell, nothing that we construct is going to withstand that kind of, of loading. So we, we can say some technical things about the objects that are being observed. Uh, frankly, if we could get our hands on the full range of data that the Navy collected, if we could get the, our hands on the full range of data that they've collected in in the hundred some incidents that they recently reported to Congress that they've studied and and classify as unidentified, we could we probably tell a lot, and and certainly we assume that they can do the acceleration, material, structural analysis to to differentiate, you know, a drone from something that is truly anomalous. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that can be done. That can be done with that kind of information. And it's fascinating, though. It, everybody has, has really been triggered off the Nimitz and these, these relatively recent Navy sightings. But I will tell you, if you go back into the late 1940s and on into the 1960s, we have technical data that was collected and reported to the Air Force's Project Blue Book that produces exactly the same accelerations, the same kind of G-loading. We have multiple reports from observers doing triangulation and measuring acceleration uh, from uh, a nuclear stockpile base in Killeen, Texas, that shows exactly the same thing. We have radar scope traces from throughout the 60s, and we have radar scope traces even into the 70s from SAC missile bases in the Dakotas and elsewhere. And those those radar screen traces show the same sorts of things. So I always feel compelled to point out there are two things going on here. Yeah, we're seeing something anomalous in this century, but it was equally anomalous in the last century decades ago. So... Mm-hmm. The capabilities of these UAPs, at least some of them, this is nothing new. Uh, they had anomalous technology back in 1948. They still have the same anomalous technology. I'm I'm curious because I I got started reading your book, but it's a big book, and I'm a very slow reader, so I have uh, I have still have quite a ways to go. But one of the I, I was I was struck by the descriptions uh, from, from World War II of those, of, of fighter pilots um, and the things that they described, the, the lights and how the, those lights would move in weird ways and at speeds that just, 
you and and you were comparing it to all of the available technology at the time and some fit but not in the right place or the right time and or or some of it just didn't fit at all didn't make any sense and and um and i was curious about how it has the progression of the anomalous technology or what i should say is what i mean to say is has the anomalous technology, the technology that we can't explain with what we currently have and can produce, has that changed over the decades? Or has that kind of stayed about the same level of... That, that's, a real, that's a really good question. And the answer is it stayed about the same. I mean, let, let's look at two that's aspects of it. One is the the in the acceleration factor which is really we're not just talking about speed we're talking about how fast these things can go when they decide to leave you know and they literally can leave at speeds greater than the eye can track and and occasionally you know people will think well they just vanished no that meant you know you you can't see a bullet in flight you can't see them in flight either. You know, it, you you get up to a certain speed and it's just gone. Um, so that that acceleration and those speeds are the same now that they have been. And it's kind of interesting. It's sort of like, could they pull away from a, oh, let's say a P-51 that was being flown in World War II or being flown in 1950? Yeah. And the pilot would give you exactly the same description that the F-18 pilot flying off the Nimitz gives you. It's sort of like when I, when I tried to follow it, it played around with me until it decided to leave. And when it decided to leave, it was gone. So that capability capability has been there. So they haven't added anything. And interestingly enough, you, you might. You might, well, okay, so there's there's fast that whatever they're made out of, how, however they move is, as far as we can observe, the capabilities reset, remain constant. The other thing that's remained constant is they aren't any stealthier now than they were in the 1940s. They could be tracked in the 1940s uh, by the radar of the time. Uh, they're tracked right now by we're tracked by Nimitz and and fleet units of the or squadron units of the Nimitz, you know, at uh, six thousand miles per hour, twelve thousand miles per hour. Well, I can show you thirty different and more than that blue book reports showing that kind of radar tracking during the fifties. So, in terms of just literal speed in the atmosphere, the thing is you really wouldn't expect that to change because, uh, you know, if you're flying down inside the atmosphere, there's, you know, it's like now we keep talking about uh, Mach 5 and Mach 6. Well, there are there are constraints in in the Mach series. You Inside the atmosphere, you really only go, you know, so fast or you're, you're going to exit and go into orbit. So none of that has really changed. There their performance is pretty much the same. They don't, 
they didn't suddenly become non-reflective on radar. Uh, they're visible radar on radar and they're visible optically. So uh, they're not trying to be, I guess an answer to that is they're also not trying to be any more covert than they ever were. Right. Uh, That's what I was thinking. Like if your goal is not stealth, <laughs> if you know that 12,000 miles an hour is going to get you all the stealth you're going to need, then probably why bother? Why, why bother? That's that's exactly it. And and we see that they do, certainly they did much more in the late 40s and early 50s. There was much more what, what I would call engagement with aircraft, both military and, and commercial aircraft, where they would approach, they would circle the aircraft, they would approach it. Uh, military pilots would essentially say that they would they would stage mock attack runs coming in above them, behind them, under them, uh, and it, we, they do they can do that then they can do that now. Again, that has not changed. They don't they don't show any hostility. They didn't really show any hostility then. They they engaged, if you will, and. Clearly, in the the Nimitz incident, they engaged to what a fascinating extent when they left the interceptor and appeared back at the station keeping point. You know, like they didn't just leave. Period. It's sort of like, oh, by the way, I was over there and now I'm here. You know, it's it's almost like messaging. It's kind of like, yes, we're real, and uh, you know, just. You couldn't touch us then. You can't touch us now. <laughs> so you, this might this might be a tough nut to crack, Larry. But you you talked a little bit about materials before, and it got me thinking about like you know the physics of it. Um, like what kind of an object would not tear itself apart at the kind of speeds that we're talking about, but also the more mass that you pack into a tight area like that. Um, it's exponential how much more energy you need in order to reach those levels of acceleration. So like, you know, maybe just spitballing, but would you, would you have to say that these things are incredibly light or just have an energy source that we can't possibly comprehend or maybe both? Actually the simplest solution uh, would get around all of that. And that would be, that somehow they've developed a field or a process to cancel inertia. If that would effectively be the same as going massless. And obviously if you can, if you can go inertialess or effectively massless, a, a small amount of energy is going to move you really quickly. A large amount of energy is going to move you even quicker. So one of the, that solves, and, and that's a lot of the speculation that's going on in certain parts of the physics community now, is that is this really, you know, something totally that we can't understand, or it's just that they have a technique to deal with mass and inertia that we don't understand? Because if you did that, you really did not, you know, we've everyone interested in science fiction has seen the calculations of what happens if you could apply constant acceleration, even four or five G, um, and if you can do that, 
you can get almost anywhere in days. Uh, so the two keys would be mass or inertia control and constant acceleration. And if, if you have no mass, um, your power source doesn't have to be that huge to provide constant acceleration, kind of like the ion drives that we're moving to in space propulsion now. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about field effects. You know, uh, is there a field effect that goes along with this that cancels atmospheric interaction? Uh, is there, there's a lot of look at, at, at the fields that might have to be generated to deal with mass and inertia and what effects that they would have. And we do see field effects in a lot of the, the observations of UFOs at closer range, field effects in terms of, on some occasions, atmospheric interactions as with clouds or, or actually field effects on ground objects, whether they're signs or trees or something. It's, it's if, if there was something surrounding the UAP, but uh, I, I guess that's the best answer that I can give you. I don't think they're, they're, constructed to be exceptionally light i don't think anybody really speculates that they're using collapsed matter for um you know the the shell of the decise i think at the moment most of the thought is that there's got to be some mass energy technology going on at a quantum level that we don't understand yeah you're you're blowing me away with that answer that's that's a tremendous answer but you know i mean we we have seen um something very much like the Higgs boson that they've discovered. So, I mean, the idea of removing mass from a particle is maybe in the realm of science fiction, but maybe not as far away as we might imagine. Well, I, I think the thing is, if if you could if you could do that, then some of the other things fall in place. You don't really require any any magic if you can do that much other other than that you really do have to kind of like okay how do i build how do i build a you know 40 foot object out of collapsed matter you know like okay Mm -hmm. let's go scoop up that neutron star that stuff gets even harder right right all right so i want to i want to just push on this a little bit because i think that especially to a lay person who has who hasn't read a few chapters of a book about UFO, like a lot of what you are saying here can sound like just straight up science fiction, right? I couldn't, I couldn't honestly tell you the things that you just said, if you were pulling those from star Wars or from real life, like I don't, I, I, I don't know enough to know why that is any of that is real. So can, I mean, can, be, can you help us with that a little to, bit? The best place to go with that, Andy, to, to really get into it. This is a great book. The Roger. title is Unconventional Flying Objects, A Scientific Analysis. And it's written by Paul Hill. And it was, uh, Paul Hill was a NASA engineer who had his own very relatively close up sightings. Um, and he really did get into exploring the physics. And, and I think, I think that's what would separate it. Uh, your question is really good. And one of the reasons it's really good because anybody's a science fiction fan 
knows that even in the 30s and 40s, there were celebrated science fiction articles and some of the classics writing about iner- inertialist drive. You know, so this is is not a brand new concept, and you will find it in science fiction and in the older science fiction, not not just the new stuff. So you need to tra- to translate that. You need to read some of the and and Hills Hills probably I found him the best it the best person to tackle it and explore those points item by item. And, and he starts with, all right, let's take these UFO incidents. Let's look at the physical effects. Let's look at all the, the different observable effects and then reverse engineer that. And and that's what he does in a classic reverse engineering mode and, and addresses all of the aspects like how could they possibly station keep? In other words, how do they hover? And by the way, is their hovering when they're very close to the ground different than when they're at several hundred feet or station hmm. keeping at 60,000 feet? Is there a difference? And he goes into that. And then, then he moves on into the propulsion. And one of the fascinating things that really does lend itself to scientific analysis, if you go that route, is that the effects of the UAPs on the ground, on plants, that sort of thing have been measured and are observable. SCU has just published a, a paper on one case out of Kansas with ground effects of the UAP that was literally setting, you know, no more than a couple of feet off the ground. That has been documented as far back as Project Repelled, uh, uh, Project Blueput, Repelled, Air Force Officer Repelled, and his team examined a similar case in Florida with much the same effects. And the the good news is you can reverse that and go, what, what kind of technology, what kind of field effect, what kind of radiation effect would produce that? So to some extent, we're at the point where we can reverse engineer what has to have happened to produce those effects? What nobody has been able to do is take it to the next step and say, well, how do we do that? That's another story entirely. Quantum physics would appear to probably be the answer. But at this point in time, there are a lot of quantum physicists and not so many quantum mechanics. I think what I, we probably really need is a trillionaire. <laughs> if, well. if I, yes, I, I mean you really do need that, and you do need you do need to pull together some people that it, you know are willing to engage with an engineering challenge. But let's face it, we've been working for uh, fusion power plants now for fifty years, and really are just maybe there. Uh, this is not a project that we're going to, that anybody is likely to deal with in, you know, it's not going to be like SpaceX. It's going to be a longer term commitment. So like you said, you need someone to fund it, but you also need a team just to a know it can be done, except that it can be done, not argue with it. And then just make the commitment to go ahead and do it. Yeah, it sounds like this is generational technology. It's not, I keep on thinking about that uh, Arthur C. Clarke line 
about uh, sufficiently advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic. Um, do you mind? I because I keep thinking if I were listening to this and I weren't familiar with UFOs, we keep on mentioning the Nimitz incident and not explaining it, and I feel like I'd be yelling at my podcast, <laughs> <laughs> my my device. Do you mind explaining a little bit about what happened and like how that was a little bit of a game changer? Sure. Uh, the Nimitz, uh, let, let's back off a bit. Uh, the Nimitz incident refers to a Navy task group that was going through pre-deployment training uh, in the Pacific off of San Diego, southwest of San Diego. And, and the routine thing is before we... Uh, deploy a task group like this, whatever direction it's going. Sometimes we deploy them out of an Atlantic base at, at Hampton Roads. Sometimes we deploy them out of San Diego. But if you're going to send a task force to the South China Sea or the the Gulf, uh, you need to shake it down first. You need to get all the ships working together. You need to coordinate air operations. So they usually put out to sea and operate and run a number of exercises for some weeks, actually, before they're considered ready for deployment. And and during that period of time, that there are all sorts of communications operations. But uh, another thing that happens, interestingly enough, is that usually the opportunity is taken to test out new equipment uh, that may be deployed for the first time operationally and to actually test it against um, uh, adversaries. So we fly out various type of aircraft, some stealthy, some not so stealthy, and they go through very various routines of can you, can you detect potential adversaries and respond to them? So it's pretty, it's not just a let's get our act together. It's also a stress test. And the Nimitz group was going through that sort of stress test early uh, the last decade. And as it was going through that test, not that they were having any problems, but now we know that one of the things that, that happened was over a number of days, radar operators on, on the ships. Uh, and by the way, these ships in this group were a couple of the ships were deploying some really advanced new, uh, not only radar systems, but data integration systems uh, to uh, coordinate with airborne uh, radars and to consolidate all this information to get a much better situational view of what was going on around the fleet, or the group, sorry, not fleet. Um, The radar operators began to notice that there were objects coming over the group at a very high altitude, 60,000 feet, you know, not not down at the level their aircraft were operating, but they were passing over the ships and then descending down to sea level, not immediately around the ships, but still within the overall area that would is, is designated as a restricted operations area for the Navy. So they simply logged that or noticed it just as an observation as it kept going on and and they got closer and to moving on to some actual full-scale air operations, I guess the radar operators reported this because they were concerned that if if this continued to happen and they were now putting aircraft out, you know, in in 
training and operational missions, if these things, <laughs> there might be a collision. There really was a safety issue. Uh, so it became not an item of just an item of interest. It became an actual operational safety issue. And that allowed them to get the permission to actually send aircraft out and see what was going on. Uh, so in one incident, they tracked uh, an object down to sea level. Uh, a couple of aircraft were dispatched to see what it was and, you know, find it. And they did actually over span of time, several aircraft did go out and look for it. And, uh, and a, one aircraft in particular noticed that something down at sea level, virtually just, just above the ocean, they noticed some disturbance going on in the water decided to go down and investigate it. And at that point in time, the object rose up in the air, uh, approached the fighter, the fighter attempted to track it. The, the net result was the fighters did get uh, video, uh, did get infrared tracks, so did collect data through its gun cameras and tracking system on this object. And this is when we talk about getting actual technical data this is the sort of thing you'd absolutely love to have. Um, in the end, uh, the object, as we talked about earlier, just decided it was done. It left. The fighters in no way could keep up with it. It just went out of sight almost instantly. Beep, beep. And the uh, and a bit later, the fighters <laughs> were advised by uh, uh, their control that the object was now over their uh, the, the area that they use to rendezvous when they're finished with their missions. It's kind of like a staging area. It's kind of like, okay, we do still have the object in track and now, now it's, now it's where you would be going. And then it left, you know? Uh, so that's, that actually made everybody a bit nervous because it suggested that somehow the UAP had either been observing the fleet to know where these aircraft were operating from, or it had just guessed or, or was able to project where they were going to go, which is even scarier. I, I'd prefer that, that they'd been tracking the air, air operations and knew where it was going to go. That's just me. So what you're saying is we can rule out like a floating plastic bag that was on some wind. Like it, it's, uh, it's got some kind of intelligence that's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. We can, and and that's two points to that. A, it, we can rule out the fact that it's anything conventional. It, it can't be a conventional, it can't be a drone. It can't be anything that we could understand if it's, if it's an aircraft, I think that's always been, it's like, well, couldn't it be the Chinese or the Russians? You would have to say, based on its acceleration, uh, if if they have that, they're not just a step ahead of us in technology. It's a whole new ball game, you know. Which might be frightening, but this appears to be more anomalous than even you know high Mac devices that are being tested off ballistic missiles at the moment. You know, uh, uh, so we know that it. It has truly anomalous technology. 
it behaves in, intelligently in terms of ha- having some interest since it approached the interceptor. It was, it obviously reacted to the, the fighter. It responded to the fighter and then it left. So it, it did engage. It, it's not passive. It didn't, it's not just passive. It didn't run off and just leave when the aircraft showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a sequence that's going on there. So yeah, we can, we can tell a lot more about the incident. Um, the interesting thing to many of us is that it, this was reported back uh, to the, to the task forces, obviously as a situation report, uh, you know, they reported this to a Navy command. It's hard to tell even at this point in time, if it got reported any further up the chain or if it really got studied by anyone. And Mm. that's one of the things why over the next several years, once, once information about this leaked out, once it became public and visible, that's what's led to the current uh, congressional interest and legislative action, trying to essentially force the department of defense to start sharing at least with Congress the extent to which it's reacting to these situations, because quite frankly, up until about a year or so ago, there was no sign that there was any organized reaction at all, other than the traditional air force. Oh, look, something happened and now it's gone. Who cares? Um, you know, we'll make a note. Uh, so this was seminal and raised the issue along with some other incidents that occurred off the East coast to Navy groups that were being, you know, in training, uh, that all rolled together to raise the issue and force the issue from a public relations standpoint to the military as to what they're really doing about this. Uh, and that, that resulted in the report the past year and, and the publication, uh, of a hundred plus incidents that had occurred, which they really don't have an explanation for. In some instances, they do have a video. Not all of them are highly anomalous. And that's one of the things we always have to rest. You know, UFOs are simply unidentified. You know, I I wish there was another term to say, this isn't just unidentified. It's doing something we totally don't understand. Um, So the Air Force kind or the Navy kind of covered itself by saying some of these could be drones. Some of them could be balloons. We still just can't identify them. Well, I don't really care about those. I would, would, would you tell me which ones behaved like the ones on the Nimitz and that they did not do. Right. I mean, and, and there's been a lot of more footage. This has been, you know, people have a camera in their pocket now. So footage, a lot more footage gets leaked nowadays than before. Does that, how does that, how does that play out on the field of UFO research compared to people like Bob Lazar, who kind of just throw out these baseless claims and, and maybe he has some credibility, but there's nothing to back up what he's saying. There's no evidence or anything to point. To. So like, it's just a, it's a weird field out there with, with actual footage that people take with their phones versus these guys. Yeah. It, it we, we've come into an era where we we really shouldn't be in the same 
mode that we were for decades, just kind of like, oh, let's listen to everybody. And maybe we want to believe everybody and we have no way of testing it. Let's just, you know, like I'd call that the the enthusiast stage. I love it. I want to hear everybody. The more sensational it is, that's even more fun. We should be beyond that by this point in time. Uh, and actually, we do have not as many as you would think. You ask, a, we would expect to see a lot more good smartphone videos than we've seen. Uh, that's not really happening. What we're seeing is a lot of fakes. We're seeing a lot of essential, effectively photoshopping. We're to the point where, uh, you know, you'll get 20 videos and it's going to take you five years to go through the technical analysis to determine if any of them are really worth analyzing. That's why, you know, the, if if I could get one set of footage off a Navy gun camera, it's worth, you know, 40 videos off their smartphones because I know if I, I can know all the parameters for that Navy camera system. And I know how it was operated. And, you know, I, I have all that background. SCU is in a position now saying, you know, we it's not that we don't want to look at those sorts of things, but you understand Here's what we have to know. We've got to have to have the original of a, a photo. We've got to have original digital copy so we can do a bitmap level study. You know, it, we can't even devote time to it unless you tell us a lot to begin with, because there is so much. Um, I don't know what a good word is, but there's so much playing around going on. But SCU is actually misinformation, maybe. Um, well. And who knows? Sometimes people are just, they don't know what their phone is really doing, quite frankly. They don't know what they really saw. They just grabbed something. Hmm. They don't know that much about the capabilities and the imaging of their phone. So I'm not saying it's all, it's not sincere or it, it's, you know, someone is trying to really fool anybody, but it's, it's mixed. You know, you, you don't have a good baseline, but SCU is actually now studied four cases where it was able to do enough validation to actually do a technical assessment. Uh, now, four cases out of what? Uh, 300,000 UFO reports over 70 years is not much, but, um, you know, that is some progress because you couldn't have even have said that a decade ago. I mean, you're, you're back in, the Lazar area where everybody's information is as good as anybody else. And where it just depends on whether or not you want to believe it, you know, MJ 12 or not MJ 12, uh, Lazar, not Lazar element 562, maybe probably not. Um, you know, now we can do a little bit better about, but you know, it's, it's not sensational. It's like one step at a time. I, I think the thing though is, we're at the point where you could make some statements just as the Navy was forced to do and literally say there are objects that we're seeing that show truly anomalous behavior that we would have no idea how to replicate. And they're not just unidentified. They are truly anomalous. And that's, that's a pretty big step forward. That has not, nobody, certainly the government has not made that step 
statement up until this last year. Yeah, so I, I actually want to talk a little bit about the like government barriers for research. So um, Donald Trump, when he was in office, he said uh, he's heard some very interesting things about Roswell. Um, have you seen like a lot of barricades to get to the information that you need? And do you think that that is something that might improve in the future with the uh, UAP task force and this congressional report? To some extent, I would have to say in in terms of the historical record, uh, FOIA has worked, the Freedom of Information Act has worked extremely well for us. Uh, Their researchers have done a fantastic job getting hold of the original Blue Book records. And when I say Blue Book records, I mean the actual field observed, the field reports, the investigative reports, in some cases, screenshots off radar systems, in other cases, actual uh, triangulation measurements with thetalites. So historically, we no longer find that many barriers. The barriers are right now are to contemporary information, getting the technical details from that Nimitz sighting or other Navy sightings. That we're not going to get. Nobody is going to give that to us. And their argument is is reasonable because literally, if they tell us, here, let's give you this, our first thing is going to say, well, I need to know everything that you know about the system that captured the information so I can analyze it. And they're going to say, well, if I tell you that, you know, the Chinese will know it five minutes before you do. Uh, You know, we would compromise our systems. So I'm not going to tell you what I can and cannot see. And that's a completely rational, realistic security concern. So I don't, the barriers that we see are not there historically. Uh, We can do a lot of work off data that has now been accessed. It's very hard to do contemporary work. But I'll I'll give you an example. Um, For example, I've got probably 30 cases that have been collected through FOIA and blue book searches of incidents of UAPs generated generating directed transmissions towards uh, U.S. aircraft or U.S. radar installations that are essentially mimicking our own uh, IFF identification friend or foe systems, our own radar systems. And those come from, they clearly were coming into the aircraft and the radar sites from a UFO. Now, if I step back from that a little bit, and if I could assemble the right group of people that had some radar expertise from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, I could take a look at, were they trying to communicate? Is some, was somebody messaging us? We have that data, but I think in one kind of protest for me, this Nimitz thing has carried everyone away to the extent that we've forgotten that we got the other data <laughs> over the last few years and we're not engaging with it. It's like, sure. oh, well, the the Navy won't tell me more. Well, you know, they're not going to tell you more, but, you know, we do have some stuff you could be working with. So I don't, I, I don't see, I, I'm not a believer that, 
the government has the answer and it's not sharing us because and as, as you read unidentified, it's very clear that the government really never had an answer. It's very clear at point in times the government was very, very worried. And I'm talking about Air Force intelligence. I'm talking about the CIA. But the overriding fact was, as, as the Air Force kept saying, you know, until they show themselves to be hostile, I've got other things to do. You know, I've got the Soviets, I've got the Chinese, I've got wars all over the place. You know, I'm going to look at this one at a time, but they never really studied them together. They just dealt with them at one at a time. And you don't, you can't master something like this one at a time. All you can do is say, oh, well, that was it unidentified. Actually, it really was unidentified. Well, let's move on. Larry, you'll have to forgive me for my ignorance. Um, Could you... Tell us what Project Blue Book is. Like, what is that? Ah, Project Blue Book was, okay, just a, a little history there. After after World War II, after the first atomic explosions, during 1947, 1948, 50, there was a, a continent-wide rash of UFO reports, major media stories. People were seeing flying saucers. Um, the Air Force, you know, after after a few months, actually did form a unit at Air Technical Intelligence and Air Intelligence to to look at this, because quite frankly, at the time, everybody halfway assumed it was the Soviets. And they actually assumed it was probably the Soviets flying advanced German technology that had been developed during World War II, because we had we'd gotten enough samples, we'd gotten the V-2 rockets, the V-1 cruise missiles, we knew the capabilities that the, the Germans had, and the Air Force suspected that the Soviets were rushing those into production and actually starting to fly them on reconnaissance missions over the US. So they took it very seriously. So they can created different projects. The first one was called Sign. The second one was called Grudge um, to look into them and generate reports. And the first thing that happened was, they found out, no, it's not the Soviets and it's not German technology, which frustrated everybody a great deal because they thought they would solve it within a matter of months. Uh, It would have been scary, but at least they would have known what was going on. As time passed, this kept occurring. Uh, And so they generated yet another project called Blue Book. And so when I refer to Blue Book, that refers to a project that started towards the end of the Korean War, 1951 through 1952, and onward into the late 1960s. And that was the Air Force study by which it, by regulation, required uh, Air Force officers at different bases to collect UFO reports and to investigate them. And they created a, a group at Air Force Intelligence at, at Wright-Patterson first and at Air Intelligence to investigate this. So when I'm talking about Blue Book, I'm talking about the Air Force's effort to take reports, investigate them, and at least classify them as misidentification or unidentified. Great. That that clears that right up. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, I, I was – all right. So I'm kind of curious about stuff like – Area 51, Roswell, you know, is that, is that what's going on there? Is there anything like under wraps there? Is the government, I mean, obviously if they're keeping a secret, we don't know the secret, but is there, 
indications that the government is hiding anything big relating to UFO studies or anything like that? I, I know that everybody's going to dep- get depressed when I say no. Uh, <laughs> uh, we wanted to run that Area 51. How right. fun is But that? the Men in Black is real, right? Men in Black yeah. is real. <laughs> oh, well, that's another story entirely. Yeah, okay, no, okay. Just, <laughs> uh, but, uh, as far as Roswell, I want to refer another book to you by Kevin Randall. Kevin Randall is kind of the guy on Roswell. He's one of the first investigators way back when, decades ago, to undertake an investigation of the Roswell story, to and go just, out and interview a lot of people. I'm sorry, the, title, the title of the, the title book is, is Roswell in the 21st Century. And All this right. is about, I'm guessing this is about the fourth book by Kevin Randall about Roswell starting in the 90s, over some three decades, two decades at least. Uh, He really stayed with the subject. He became the guru on the subject, probably the most objective student of the subject. And so Kevin undoubtedly has the most background on Roswell. And, And basically what happened with Roswell is, I mean, there was a report, and there's no argument that a report was generated that something had something had been recovered at, at Roswell. The Air Force had recovered something. Um, it made newspaper headlines, and then the Air Force came back and said, well, you know, we found out it was just a weather balloon, uh, and everybody was mistaken. And with the the spirit of never believing anything anyone says, everybody went, oh, well, then that must have really been a UFO. Obviously, it's a saucer. So when Randall and Smith and some of the other people went out to start doing interviews, they ran across all of these people who started giving them contemporary stories from 1947 that suggested that a crashed UFO with bodies, with people, had been recovered. this spawned a whole series of of documents that were surfaced. These are the kind of documents that you don't get through FOIA. You don't go to the National Archives and get these. They show up in your mailbox in a brown paper envelope. You know, those kind <laughs> of documents, which, yeah, you know, got, you got to love. That, that's kind of like, that's, that's another element, 256. Great. Did you that provide is exactly the kind of source that Beat a Dead Source podcast is is out for. And this went, the, the first arrived, it's a long story, the first, but arrived with in Los Angeles in a brown paper envelope. But over the years, they kept arriving. And strangely enough, they started showing up in this mailbox outside Area 51. You know, it's like, okay, that makes it even better. Um, but <laughs> Kevin, and they, they did a lot of work with this because a lot of these people seemed very sincere they had rather detailed stories, and if you track through uh, those different books, unfortunately, what you find, as as Kevin found over the years, is certainly there's evidence that something was recovered, and it was probably classified. It, it wasn't as simple as a weather balloon. Uh, it was whatever it was very likely came out of secret project testing at White Sands, which is just across the mountains from, from uh, Roswell. Uh, so that's also drove it. It's because it, you know, it's, 
it's probably not in not totally innocuous. It wasn't as simple as the cover story, but it was classified for at least that point in time. And as it turned out, virtually all of these witnesses, even the most sincere ones that provided the most detail, uh, all proved essentially bogus over the years. And in, in this, and I have to give Randall a great deal of credit. That's what he says in this book. He says, like, I've engaged with this forever and ever. I'm going to go back through everybody we found, tell you what we learned over the decades, and tell you why essentially what I said earlier isn't true. And I really admire that kind of investigation. And, and it's not, again, Kevin still believes something was found and he doesn't, we don't know what it was. Uh, personally, my suspicion is, and I, I take this uh, from the work of another researcher, is that what they recovered was a device called a radio sonde. Now, a radio sonde is, is actually a derivative of a device that you lower into the ocean and use it to detect acoustic waves for submarine detection. And if somebody found that out in the desert in New Mexico, immediately we go, United States nuts, what are you doing with this submarine detector out here? It would have given away a hugely classified secret at the time that we were developing constant level stratospheric balloons and launching them because we thought we would be able to pick up very long distance acoustic waves of Soviet atomic testing. And we were absolutely totally paranoid and totally, it was one of several different methods that were being tried. But if we, we also thought that there was a, a layer of atmosphere that carried sound especially well, you could hear a an atomic bomb explosion. You might even be able to hear a rocket launch. It might be a, a very long range detection system. And there was a, a lot of hope for it. It didn't work out. But again, if you'd seen a photograph of, of one of these things in a national newspaper, uh, it certainly would have be, betrayed a classified secret. So that's kind of my suspicion. Kevin hasn't really gone Kevin's just saying something happened. It wasn't what we thought it was. It wasn't a crashed UFO, most likely. And, you know, this is what we've learned over two, three decades. So that that gives you Roswell. Area 51 is another one that is quite similar. It's a, it's a story that developed because there was a cover story. I mean, there there have been a variety of cover stories to cover up the fact that we were testing Soviet aircraft at Area 51 uh, that we had essentially hijacked and stolen. And we didn't really want the Soviets to know that we had managed to get a fighter from one of their East German or East German or one of their, you know, uh, republics on their border. And that we were now learning all the capabilities of their most advanced fighter. You don't want people to know that you need cover stories for these things. Uh, and so it's it's easy for us researchers to get trapped in a cover story, and it seems like the more sensational the story, I mean, you just get it. so. And now, unfortunately, like to get back to our early earlier conversation, uh, if somebody handed off one of these devices to us 
And we truly didn't even understand the physics, especially if they handed off pieces of one of these devices. You know, it's just irrational to think that we could reassemble it and make it work when we would have no clue of even the basic physics behind it. You know, okay, throw the switch that says quantum entanglement. It it probably, you know, (laughs) if I could try the switch, (laughs) I would throw it. Do not throw that switch. (laughs) (laughs) maybe yeah uh yeah maybe we shouldn't actually after the last couple years we know which quantum we want to entangle with the direction finder but it's something something i love this This is so cool (laughs) something we may want to talk about is i just barely touched on it and that is that that for some reason, everybody's become so engaged with the Nimitz and contemporary affairs. And now we're frustrated because we can't get any new information. There is stuff that can be done with the old information. <laughs> if we could just get people to work more with it, but it's just not, it's kind of like what we just discussed. It just seems so not exciting compared to, you know, the Nimitz. <laughs> yeah. So, so what kind of research would you like to see done with the old like archival information that we have well i i really would like to see people that with with some experience and like i was saying people that have experience with those radar systems people that had experience with the technology of the period go back and, and look at the reports and i i've asked for volunteers before but it, it is hard to ask for volunteers because quite frankly that's a group of folks that are aging to some extent you know if i want a a radar engineer out of the 1950s or 1960s. There aren't that many of them around. Uh, although sometimes there are, are people that really dig into those su- sorts of subjects historically. But if, if we could find the right people, we actually have cases that were, I won't say they were never studied because they're, they're studied well enough, uh, to give us actual pretty detailed reports from the people that did study them originally. Uh, For example, you get uh, radiation measurements. Uh, You get, uh, you you get technical detail that you could work with it. You're never going to get as much as you want, but there are studies that can be, could be done. And, and quite frankly, we know a lot more about things now both science and what was and was not going on now. And that, that would let you reapproach the subject in the way an Air Force investigator in 1951 couldn't. I mean, one of the, one of the problems for the Air Force back at that time, and you can see it in the reports, is the investigators will go, well, yeah, you know, this is really anomalous, but nobody will tell me all the stuff we're doing. So maybe it's something classified that we just don't know about, so maybe we shouldn't dig into it. And you'll see that in all the air intelligence reports. It's like, well, we can't resolve it, but maybe there's some agency and some group, whatever, that, that's doing something and and they won't tell us, so let's just leave it alone. Uh, we now know what was and what was not being done from a technology standpoint. Uh, most of that stuff has been declassified through the 1970s, 60s and 1970s, even what was being done with the orbital surveillance systems, the camera systems, the overflights. I know 
I can give a list of every U-2 flight, every SR-71 flight, you know, so we could, we could reject a lot of things that would have still been puzzling then. So there could be a lot of restudy did, uh, restudy done if people were willing to engage with some of those earlier cases. I, I think some of it gets really fascinating. There was a, an incident at Oak Ridge, a series of radar tracking and, and ground observations. And finally, two or three radiation uh, detection incidents. And uh, some of the local intelligence people directly mapped the radiation spikes to UFOs that were flying over the instrument. I mean, specifically from point to point, this instrument triggered, that instrument triggered, that instrument triggered. And a senior intelligence officer at Oak Ridge really made a proposal to to Project Blue Book uh, to, you know, field a a very intense study because Oak Ridge had these radio detectors, radiation detectors all over the place for its own purposes, for leaks, that sort of thing. And you could have used it as an instrument. Um, And it didn't get done. But something might be done with the data that he had collected. Those reports are available. Um, there are there are other incidents like that uh, where people could actually go back and say, "Is there any way to engage this? Uh, what what would it tell us? What would it what would it take, or what would it tell us about the UAP if it was really you know what would drive a a beta level detector?" Uh, 2000 people, how, how, how hot would the source have to be? How much leakage would it have to have? Does that make any sense at all? And some of those things are, would really be, you know, technically challenging if we could get the right people to study them again. You ask the question, you know, are, do we have any information? Is, there's any block from us? And the answer is, of course, there is now, but we're not doing all that we could with the stuff that's available to us already. Mm. It seems like the UAPs are giving off some some level of radiation, or or something is certainly giving off some level of radiation. And not and not necessarily all types. You know, there's a lot to be studied. Done. You know, is that does that relate to a certain type of of UFO UAP? Uh, does it uh, Hill makes an argument in his book that we discussed earlier that it only happens under certain conditions where they are operating at low altitude, where they're making a, an extreme uh, change in acceleration. You know, there's certain flight characteristics that you could map to it that might tell you something about the propulsion source. Uh, so that's why I say there. And that's one of the things that he tried to do is take a lot of those those types of incidents and reverse engineer them. But he was doing that uh, 20 years ago. We need to have somebody doing that now with what we understand about physics. Um, But of course that's hard to do because those people have day jobs, you know, (laughs) right. Not like they don't have careers that they're engaged in. So this is information that we could get with a FOIA request for, um, for the radiation data oh yeah it, it, it's actually easier than that it's all online uh if if you go to those nicap chronologies that i was talking about a lot of those will have links for the reports 
for the individual incidents that people have already put together. Uh, uh, there's a lot of, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to start fresh. And, and in my book, I actually give citations for most of that where you would go to find them, but uh, there's more stuff that could be done. Uh, so yeah, it, it's we'll, available. You, we'll you don't stick a couple of those, dig it out. Yeah. We'll stick a couple of those links in the doobly-doo for, for listeners to go look at themselves. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, if you take them to the uh, NICAP.org and take them to the chronologies, you'll quickly find reports. Uh, they're all, they're live links. Hmm. So you can pick up a couple of live links there that take you to actually individual pages of the reports. Cool. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. And a lot of people might have extra time now since we're all stuck indoors, <laughs> like a lot of those radar engineers or, um, you know, radiation people that were operating in the fifties and sixties, they might have a lot of time on their hands. You would think that they would. I've, I've tried to float ideas uh, or float out to certain, you know, special interest groups, radar veterans groups and that sort of thing. And, and you'll get some, you'll get some feedback about their own experiences. Uh, but so far I haven't really recruited anyone. Uh, the other thing that we can do, and I will say that we, I'm engaged right now is you can do the type of historical study that the Air Force didn't do. And and I should bring that up. You asked, the question was, what was Blue Book? And and Blue Book essentially can be used to describe the the Air Force study of UFO reports over the better part of three decades. And what what the Air Force did was literally take each each report they did investigate them. They, you know, they had forms, they collected information. In some instances, they did quite comprehensive investigations. And you'll find a, you know, a 20 or 30 or 40 page report. But the approach that they used was always to say, is, is this the report? Is it, is it the report that would absolutely totally prove that it's extraterrestrial? or, you know, or the Russians, what I mean, I want the report. And they would do that. And they would even, uh, there's a list of hundreds of uh, unidentified, you know, blue book reports that were concluded as unidentified. You know, we've investigated as far as we can. We don't know what it was. And there is even a, a list. Uh, if you do us, you'll find it on NICAP, the Brad Sparks list that contains those unidentified UFO reports. So you, you think that would be a good place to start, right? You know, it's like, okay, the Air Force didn't investigate it. They had to admit they didn't know what it was, but then they just closed it. They just yeah. like, okay, put it in the file, label it unidentified. It's a new day tomorrow. You will probably get another report. I'm, I'm a big uh, fan of the inconclusive conclusion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it's actually, it's very much safer for your career because if you <laughs> like, if you're a, oh, right, you don't want to put your name on it and be wrong. You'd yeah, rather, you're, I stand by the fact that I do not know what that was. <laughs> well, what, let's say this, the, the people in the first group that I talked about, this project sign people actually did that. The people at Wright Patterson went to Washington to the air intelligence group that they were under and said, we think this is real. And we think it might actually be extraterrestrial. And everybody in headquarters went, well, thank you for your input. 
And all those people got new assignments within six months. And oh, no. everybody who is career military uh, <laughs> oh, is pretty quick on the uptake for that. So you can draw your own conclusions. But the next iteration of the project was called Grudge. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's very clear from how they handled those reports that they understood that nobody really wanted to see yet another conclusion that this is real and we can't handle it and we should don't know what to do about it. Nobody wants to see those reports. <laughs> I, keep, I keep thinking about it. It must be impossible to get people to take this seriously, especially when for them to take it seriously, they need to be able to explain it to their higher up. They need to be able to say to their supervisor, hey, this is what we think. And uh, especially when there's like, it will basically cost them their career. Yeah, it's, I'm going to go to my boss. And I'm going to say, oh, look, I, I know you've got the public information officer that wants a statement on this. The press is asking for them. And I'm going to give you my sincere opinion that it's totally unidentified. Uh, we can't track it. We can't intercept it. We can't do anything about it. And my boss, you know, the general is going to say, you know, I'm not letting you talk to the public information officer. <laughs> right. This is this is not. We're not going to do that. Um, so you really do. It, it's it's irony at its best. But you're asking an organization that's chartered with air defense to actually say, no, we can't do it. Uh, it's and but don't take away our budget, okay? Um, <laughs> I, I'll so give you a. a, a kind of a similar analogy for Homeland uh, Security. Uh, you may not have followed this, but a couple of years ago, there on the West Coast, there was an, an aircraft that was sighted over in the Los Angeles identification zone for commercial air traffic. It was sighted by at least three different commercial airliners who advised LA Control that they had an object that was you know, not, they described it as like a, a medium-sized jet aircraft. It didn't have a transponder on. It was flying in commercial air zones, and it was flying at, at jet airliner speed. I mean, we're talking about 600, 700 miles an hour. Uh, L.A. control couldn't get it to identify itself, couldn't communicate with it. That thing was tracked by various commercial aircraft all the way up from the West Coast to Seattle. Jet, fighters were scrambled. Only they, a fighter didn't get into the air until they got to Washington State, as I recall. The fighters that got into the air couldn't locate it. And we don't know what it was. We don't know whose it was. It could have very well been a, you know, a Chinese reconnaissance aircraft collecting every bit of data it wanted over the entire West Coast. And we have no clue. Or Canadian geese. From. We don't know it where seems, it went. It seems like Canadian geese come up. as uh, <laughs> Yeah, that a very solid formation. Well, well structured. <laughs> but I, that just takes you back to it's not even. It's not even just the Air Force or the Navy. We're just in a situation where things happen and. They happen on a one-off basis. They're a hot item for a day. They maybe get into the press. They go away, and nobody ever studies it as a body of information, which is 
where I was trying to get to is there is, if, if it had been approved, Blue Book Air Intelligence could have kicked this whole thing up to the level of what's called strategic intelligence. And that goes to a group within uh, the intelligence community. It's officially tasked. And you set up a group to study this thing, not just incident by incident or month by month, but year by year, using a whole series of techniques called threat and warnings intelligence or indications analysis. And the business community is called indications analysis. And you start setting up baselines and you look for differences and do pattern analysis. All that could be done with this subject. It was never done because it was never elevated past the level of this one-off, case by case. We are always looking for the perfect case. We never found it. Nobody studied it as a body of information. And actually, I'm engaged in a study trying to deal with it. And you see, when you read my book, you see I actually illustrate how that can be done in my book by – saying, I'll, okay, the Air Force didn't do this. I'll do a run through myself of their data and evaluate it as to whether or not it could have been the Soviets. And I, I do walk through that process in the book to show how it could be done. And we're kind of tackling it in, a, in, the, in the same way now in, in our study uh, within SCU. But I, I guess that's the other point I was trying to make. There's just looking at it case by case and always being trapped in this thing. I, I I don't think you're ever until one of them lands and somebody gets out, which does not look like they're inclined to do. Uh, you're not going to have a perfect case. All, all you will have is just a better and better report. It'll get to be like Nimitz and somebody, some other group, whether it's Navy or department of defense will have to say, yep, we investigated it, and it's anomalous and unidentified. Thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> Do you think it's being taken seriously enough now in the public that uh, you know private organizations will start uh, taking up the task of analyzing this old data and uh, making like a comprehensive longitudinal study over over several years of research to look at the whole picture? I. The problem with that is that the way that that should be done is it it really should be an academic exercise. There should, I mean, you either do it with specialists within the intelligence community, and I don't see any sign that that's happening. I mean, even with the new legislation that's been passed that's demanding regular briefings for Congress, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid they're going to be just like the one we got last year a list of incidents and yeah, we got 300 reports and a hundred of them. We just don't know what they are. I, and it'll just stay at that report by report level. Right. That They don't have that long view. And I don't, I don't know that anybody's making that happen. We haven't seen any sign of it. Uh, uh, what we did see was that the, the defense community tried to essentially get in front of this legislation that just got passed last month by saying, oh, well, trust us, we'll set up yet another inquiry within the defense community, and this time we'll do it right. Uh, 
you know, and it, it's just like, yeah, we know how you did it before. Sure. Tell us how it's going to be different. Well, you didn't get how it's going to be different. <laughs> yeah. right. but, but to answer your question, I don't know. Certainly a group like SEU can try to do that with very, very limited volunteers and resources. Uh, and the, ac- the academic community could try to do it. But I, I will tell you honestly, and I, I've talked to a number of academics, this stuff is still um, it, academia does not like it because stigmatized. It's stigma. It's stigmatized for the pure scientist in the community, and for let's say the historians and the social scientists and that sort of thing. It it's it's still stigmatized. Uh, so yeah, it, it it's you know if I once I see a National Science Foundation grant for a study like I just described, mm-hmm. I would take it seriously. But until you see money coming out from the NSF or some from uh, a major foundation to an academic community, uh, what happened with Bigelow and that whole thing is not what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, we're not talking about somebody within DOD giving a grant to someone and, and it not not taking it seriously, which they did not. You would have to be talking about a major foundation signing an agreement with the university to do a a real study. And of course we did have that one time before with the university, with Colorado uh, and the air force, and that didn't work out well. Um, But so I don't want to sound negative. Uh, There's a huge amount more people. the, The funny thing is, now that we've had the Department of Defense say, yes, they are real and we don't know what they are, you would think that there would really <laughs> – that would be like a tipping point. Right. Know? It's it's not supposed to be the end of the – you know, yeah. End of the story. It, it's supposed to then – well, we got to figure it out, right? We're, um, so uh, all in all, like um, – what is one of the most what what's the most fascinating like UFO fact I guess that uh that we haven't really talked about yet today that is not really well known that you'd like to get out there have people be be more aware of I I think and this this emerges to me from looking at the long picture of the thing I I think because of the entertainment industries and the movies and, and, and everything, even science fiction, okay, which I'm a longtime fan of, there's an anticipation that if this were real, oh. that there would be contact. Welcome to Earth. Yeah, okay, yes. Yeah. Uh, but there would be contact. And, and for that people reason, people tend to go, well, of course they are. Of course it's real, but maybe I don't really think that because surely they would make an effort to contact. I think the, the distinguishing thing that jumps out to me is nobody really has wrestled with outside of a few good science fiction stories, why they would be here doing what they are very openly over decades and show no sign that they're looking to the kind of personal contact, broad contact, you know, the, the kind of uh, contact that we would expect, you know, not friendly aliens, not hostile aliens, just 
Nothing at all. You, you've got to go down there, talk to those people, Jean-Luc. Open their eyes, educate them. The Prime Directive forbids us to interfere with the social order of any planet. Well, it's your Prime Directive, not mine. And, and I don't... You, you don't even see stories written about that. You don't see any theoretical exploration. Everybody tends to... The facts are staring you in the face so much that nobody wants to engage with them, I think. It's like, what, what does that really mean? Should we ponder that? Um, that's, you know, that's a theoretical thing. Uh, but it does jump out from, from these incidents. One of the things, let's, let's, you asked me to, to give you a couple of concrete examples that would, would lead me in that direction. For example, we were talking about radiation. There are at least three or four stories of individuals that did come close right up to almost physical contact with a UFO that was either on the ground or hovering just beyond the ground. In all of those cases, these people got terrible radiation burns. That this was all confirmed by doctor's examination, one of them within Canada, uh, one in Florida. And and in some, some cases, they were really bad. And some, in some cases, they were just relatively superficial. But there is some indication that either the devices themselves can be dangerous, and that would preclude them you know, approaching us in open contact or that they themselves may be able to tolerate a level of radiation that's totally foreign to us. And it's just an interesting question that I don't see. If, If these cases are real and they appear to be well substantiated, we may have an explanation for the contact phenomena right there. It's not that they don't want to contact us. It's that they are different enough so that they can't contact us directly. We're we're kind of winding down on time, but there's a fun question I wanted to ask you. Are you familiar with the Fermi paradox and the Dark Forest? By I know I'm going to butcher this name, but Liu Cixin. Uh, yeah, uh, basically my view of that, if I've got the right premise that you're talking about, is the reason nobody is contacting us is because everybody goes through cultural phases, and after a certain point, either ruins their planetary environment so much that they pass away or they blow themselves away. So there's nobody left to contact us. Right. That, that if we um, came across another civilization, it would be like sticking our head out of the dark forest and whoever shot first would be the one likely to survive. Either they're not there or they're there. And really there aren't that many of them and they're pretty hostile. Uh. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with both. One, I, I'm, I guess I'm less responsive to the dark forest thing because of what appears to have been going on for 70 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if we have seen what we've seen over this many decades, if they were really hostile, we'd know it by now, unless they're time frame is so totally different from our, you know, like a blink of an eye versus, you know, three decades, you know, maybe they're, they operate on a 
a totally different time scale than we do. But I I don't see that. It, it's almost like what I see in the reality of the incidents and that we have now is they're here and it's their choice. They don't care that we're that we know that they're here. That's they just really don't care, you know. Either either that or they're it's taking them a very long time to stage a, a foraging operation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Uh, I personally think you, you, you had asked a question via email. It's like, I, I think they, they are just have gotten to the point where they learned what they wanted to know fairly quickly. And now they just cannot fathom how stupid we are. <laughs> yep. It's like the, these people have their heads up so far, you know, we're going to continue to observe them just because we don't see how any race that is supposedly has, this much technical intelligence could be so glaringly oblivious to reality. Yeah. We're just the universe's Jersey shore or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That takes me even, I, I, the dark forest doesn't worry me. What worries me is that in effect, we're on a galactic cable channel somewhere. (laughs) Could be. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah. Jersey shores. We've got, you know, uh, here, let's tune into these people and see what they're doing this week. Oh gosh, <laughs> isn't that embarrassingly funny? I always like. Um, I was always a big fan of the uh, the TV shows and the concept of of some aliens living among us and observing and stuff. You know, always loved the show Third Rock from the Sun with John Lithgow. Yeah. Um. So I, I'm I'm fine with that. I like the idea of there's something oddly like comforting about the idea that if there are aliens capable of getting here and and you know interacting with our world that they're observing and learning about us before jumping right in because boy are we a hot mess or or that they're just like I give you one more concrete example, Andy. I mean we have the case in. About starting about 40 miles north of New York City, uh, going north up the Hudson River Valley over a period of a dozen years. And I don't know if you're familiar or not. We have what are called the Hudson River Valley sightings. These are of gigantic, generally triangular black objects that would be, you know, the size of an aircraft carrier, maybe smaller, but they're, they're really big. And They've been seen by thousands and thousands of people. They fly over rush hour traffic. You know, they they have these gigantic lights on them. They they generally come over you know, at dusk or twilight with these big lights on them. And people that are right under them looking up kind of say, you know, this is, it looks like a bridge. There are these girders. There is stuff hanging down. There's no way that this should be able to fly. And, and you know, it's, it's I can just see this TV show. Yeah, you know, it's a galactic channel. It's sort of like the important thing being, I just upgraded our cable package with programming from every conceivable reality. Wait, does that mean we get Showtime Extreme? How about Showtime Extreme in a world where man evolved from corn? What do we have to do to get these people's attention? Okay, that's what we're doing this <laughs> season, guys. We've got 
We've got these gigantic things that look like bridges flying over their mm. freeways and 10,000 people are seeing them and they're still ignoring us. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. We sent Dennis Rodman over there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what more can we do? You know, it's like, well, so I wanted to get in. So, Larry, your book is Unidentified. And I wanted to ask you, um, like, what's something that our, our listeners can only get from your book that they can't get anywhere else just to sort of plug, plug your book. I think two things that they could get one is I think I do offer the most detailed examination of how the government did react to UFOs. I mean, they're generally, they're two public things. It's like either they ignored them and that was silly or they investigated them and they actually learned early on what they are. And they've been keeping that from us. And what you will see proven in the book, because I, now that we have access to all the documents, I can prove that they did not ignore them. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, as an example, in, in 1952, after a series of major embarrassing UFO incidents over Washington, D.C., where it took the Air Force an hour to even get an interceptor over the Capitol to try to find a UFO that was being seen by radar and several uh, airliners, you know, embarrassing enough in itself. The president actually calls air intelligence and Air Force people in there. And there's, we found a memo that says defense of the Capitol. And clearly the president called them in and raked them over the coals. You know, I, I, this is the Russians are reading our headlines and they, they're knowing that we don't even have, we can't deal with something over our own capital. Um, wow. <laughs> from there, it passed. He, he got so fed up with the Air Force that he called in the CIA and said, clearly the Air Force can't find anything with both hands. And I want you to, CIA, you're my last chance. You tell me what's going on. The CIA backed off. And went and did their own study. And at first they were very dismissive of the Air Force, rightly so, because of the way that the Air Force was handling it. But then the CIA comes back and writes a memo, the head of their technology group writes a memo saying, now that we've looked all the data, there is an outstanding national security threat to the United States. And they write this memo to the CIA director and says he needs to take it immediately to the national security advisor and the president and make this a national emergency. I very wow. doubt, much doubt that anybody realizes it got to that stage. The CIA director takes that very seriously and sends a proposal up the channel to take it to the National Security Channel, which has its own filter group. Okay. And I go through sure. all of this in the book. And they write back and say, well, we don't really want to deal with this issue and until you can bring a group of scientists in and verify that it's really real. And if the scientists support you, we don't, we don't care if the CIA or air intelligence supports it. You've got to have the scientists because if we try to bump this to the president, you know, our, our credibility is at risk. And that's when they convened this panel and exactly how the panel turned it in from a national security uh, UAP, UAP threat to a propaganda concern is fascinating. And that's in the book. So I, I guess what I'm saying is if 
if somebody really wants to know the history of how the government has dealt with this subject, pro-con, embarrassing detail, that is in the book. And I think that's the only place you're going to find it dealt with in that manner. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, all of our listeners go out and buy Larry's book if you want, if you want this kind (laughs) Mm -hmm. of juicy government drama. It's on Amazon. Not a problem. Oh, the link will be in the doobly-doo for sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Any final thoughts? Uh, I think I I would love to take more questions, maybe at another time, maybe if if viewers have questions. I I think Mm -hmm. it's it's a hard, what's hardest for me to do is to talk about it now because everybody wants to talk about, it's like UFOs only became a thing, what, two, three years ago? <laughs> and for me, they've been a thing since 1964, you know, so I don't want to lose the viewers or other people by not talking about contemporary events where my history just takes me all over the place. <laughs> Um, I, I have a fun one. So Tom DeLong, who was the lead singer of Blink-182. Watching, waiting, kind of got a lot of this stuff leaked and Luis Elizondo wound up being put in, in charge of this task force. Do you have any reaction to, you know, a singer of a band just being kind of instrumental in this release of what became a, a congressional report? Oh, well, clearly I should have learned to play the guitar a long time ago. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, that is, and it's fascinating how much of an entree and and the same thing in, in the past has happened with entertainers. Again, not to dig into the past, but I, I can tell you like Jackie Gleason. The story of lunar exploration started with one man, a man with a dream. One of these days, Alice, bang, zoom, straight to the moon. Wow. I never realized the first astronauts were so fat. That's not an astronaut. It's a TV comedian. And he was just using space travel as a metaphor for beating his wife. There, there, over the period of time, there have been entertainments and, you know, public figures who have really been interested in the subject and have man- managed to get in front of con- congressional committees and to get a lot of access, not because they really knew anything about the phenomena, just because of that they were a recognizable name. And I, I think... Mm. Tom has done that. One of one of my problems is Tom kind of entered the field with both feet, as it were, and picked up a tremendous amount of information all over the place at one time. Some of it was good. Some of it was not so good. I mean, there's, I will say for your readers, and I, I can recommend another book if, if you would like. Yeah, please, please, I mean, please. The book is Project Beta by Greg Bishop which doesn't get talked about nearly as much as it should. But one of the points, and I I alluded to this earlier, is UFOs have been used as a national security cover. They have been used to cover new technologies, not not radical technologies, but high altitude like the stratospheric balloons that I was talking about. They've been used to to cover projects like the U-2 and the SRC. SR-71, very high 
altitude reconnaissance aircraft. And, and we now know, and I write in the book about the fact that the Air Force and, and various parts of the intelligence community have, have planted stories and written off actual sightings of, of advanced technology craft as UFOs, as covers, very usefully. Uh, the CIA even issued a report saying almost every UFO report during the 1960s was the SR-71 at high altitudes. That's just nonsense, and I deal with that in the book. But there is a dark side of this, and Project Beta explores an incident relating to a scientist in Albuquerque who was observing some tests going on with uh, basically their laser-configured mirrors for high-resolution, uh, high, high. they can image satellites. It was part of the Reagan-era Star Wars project. He thought they were UFOs. And to help cover up this project, the Air Force and Air Intelligence and literally messed with him to the extent that they fed him bogus information. They created bogus sightings for him. And the man eventually ended up committing suicide. Uh, That's terrible. One, one wow. of the reasons, yeah, one of the reasons for this is that U.S. intelligence absolutely knows and knew that Soviet intelligence had infiltrated the UFO community because one of the the fastest ways to pick up intelligence is called open source intelligence, where you get you know. If, what were UFO groups doing? They were looking for reports of any unconventional aerial objects. Well, if I was interested in what the U.S. was developing, that would just be a boon of information. I'd have right, to yeah. figure it out. Mm-hmm. But so intelligence groups fed disinformation into UFO groups. And there's a there's a whole dark side of this whole question. Quite frankly, that little exercise discussed in Project Beta gave rise to the greys, the reptilians, the underground bases, the covert space forces, just all of the garbage that accumulated hmm. over three or four decades. Can be traced back to a lot of this stuff that was being leaked. And then this should this is a great book. It it shows you where a lot of that started and why it started, uh and who enabled it. Um so I, I, I guess getting back to the to the the whole point is that we, we did not discuss is when when Tom jumped into this, it's easy to jump into this subject and get totally lost and not be able to tell the the true from the false, the sensational from the not sensational, mm-hmm. and there's a danger in that. Uh, so it's great to have endorsements and supporters and people that get you attention, but sometimes that can be a mixed blessing. For sure. Yeah, totally. So I notice I see your telescope there behind you. Celestron 8-inch. Mm. Spitzkasagrin. Have you ever seen any, uh, had any anomalous sightings? <laughs> I, I've seen some anomalous objects. The first one I saw was a lot of fun. Back in 1965, I, I told you that there was a lot of UFO activity here. I was listening to UFO reports coming in over the radio from all over central Oklahoma. And I mean, this is this is great. I'm going to go outside and I'm going to see my first UFO. 
And I look up and suddenly there's this orange like orb disc that is just shooting right overhead at ultra high speed. And I'm going, wow, this is, that's it. This is great. And then after it's passed over a little bit, I come to realize what I just saw was an interceptor on full afterburner going after a UFO. Now, oh wow! I, I will tell you that the UFO, the U.S. Air Force absolutely denied they sent any interceptors after UFOs. And I will tell you, I saw one. So I didn't see the UFO. <laughs> I saw the interceptor chasing it. Now, talk about frustrating. Um, there have been. I think I have been privileged to see about every type of misidentification that you can imagine, uh, plastic balloons with sticks and candles inside them that float mysteriously across the evening sky, uh, seen those. So I've seen a lot of stuff that I was able to identify. There are two things that I was never able to identify and, and I totally don't understand. And they may be, totally explicable, but I don't, I don't get it. Uh, Once in California and once in Atlanta, Georgia, I was out in the backyard and I saw an object that would be, look about the same size as a very large Mylar party balloon, you know, birthday balloon, the thing that you get, a a big one, you know, Mm -hmm. like two feet, three feet in size. This thing would pass absolutely level, absolutely stable, absolutely no wind that I could detect anywhere, probably no more than, oh, 20, 25 miles an hour, just flew right past me within 100 feet, no markings on it, just looks like a silver balloon, yet the sucker manages to avoid all the structures in its path, including in Atlanta, moving in and around a whole forest of some 50 trees while I'm watching it, maneuvering around the trees. I don't understand how that happens. There may be a perfectly reasonable explanation. Those are the only ones I've seen so far that I would say it was an unidentified flying object. Just my luck, not anything spectacular at all. Just like, how did that happen? <laughs> hmm. And it, it doesn't make a good That's story. A really, no, it doesn't a, fit with anything else, you know? That's more than I've seen. So, I mean, that's already a better story than right. I have. Absolutely. I will say with this telescope, I have scared myself to death. One time in California, I was out observing at night, looking at something, and I, I turned around and looked up in the sky, and I saw this spectacular, glowing, filigreed, it's just like, okay, either this is a UFO or it's the end of the world. Uh, prepare yourself. Uh And then I realized after, again, a little bit of conscious thought, if you live in California, this does happen to you because it was a launch out of Vandenberg. And when they launch out of Vandenberg and it passes through different levels of atmosphere, the winds are different and it really diverts the rocket trail. And when that happens right after dark, the sun's still on it, but it's dark where you are. Now, now that SpaceX is launching out there, a lot more people are seeing them. But when I saw them back in the seventies, it was like, oh, oh, gee, <laughs> that was scary. the end. <laughs> that, it was. The, I, I was signed up to that. It's kind of like, okay, close up the telescope. We're done. <laughs> well, 
Um, I think we are just about out of time, but thank you so much for dedicating your time to us, Larry. And uh, yeah, just thank really you. Thank appreciate you. all of your information. <laughs> this is really you all it, it. Enjoy it. And anytime, if you come up with more questions, that's great. Uh, <laughs> obviously, we glossed over a lot of things. We, we totally forgot that Project Beta thing, but we, we didn't really talk about the dark side, which is – it's just been a huge amount of misinformation, disinformation, some of it intentional that, that has really diverted things, especially, you know, over the years, it's it's taken people away from the, the more concrete sightings that you could engage with. Well, you are absolutely one of our favorite people, Larry. So I think we'll yeah. be more than happy to have you back for part two. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna be actively looking for for reasons to bring you back. So, Definitely. all right, that sounds good. It's nice talking with you all. It was great to yeah, see you again, Larry. On, Larry. Same. Have thank you week. so much. You Bye. Too. Bye. Good Bye. to see you. And that was an interview. I mean, Larry can't talk. He is great. I absolutely love that. Guy. Yeah. No, that was amazing. He, and once again impressed me at how much of the content he just knew off the top of his head had to consult nothing (laughs) yeah i didn't see him glimpse down at notes or anything like that like the whole time like that was just larry which is incredible yeah he's just got this off the top of his dome and again remember we're going to drop the link in the doobly-doo but if you can if you want to do a favor for the pod if you want to be a sorcerer go out and buy a copy of unidentified it is on amazon and you guys know how i feel about amazon feel free to buy it off of ebay or whatever but definitely go buy a copy of larry's book because it is fascinating and has so much more than what we talked about today uh if you want that juicy juicy government drama ooh, maybe i'll put in that link um yeah you should put that link in and uh, you know what my screen of an amazon review Yes, and my favorite link is to uh, www.preciousmoments.com. Precious Moments. Is that dot com? Or That's better than the one I was crafting that was going to say, like, my favorite UAP is Precious Moments. Can we just... Uh, UAP is unidentified aerial phenomena. Aerial projectile? Aerial phenomena. Phenomena, yeah. okay. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I, uh, you know... You don't want to break the momentum for a stupid question like that, but. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, does anybody have any of these uh, so-called precious moments? Yeah. Well, you were talking about um, Christmas gifts earlier, and it reminded me of my absolute favorite Christmas gift that uh, my sister's husband got for my baby nephews. Uh, He got an automaton. I don't know if you guys are familiar. It's this, like blue it's shaped like a music note and it's got a little mouth at the bottom and there's a sliding i guess like a metallic sensor and uh it's an instrument and as you uh push up and down on this metallic slider it creates a pitch and you can uh manipulate the mouth to make like different sort of it sounds like mouth sounds because of the of the mouth opening and closing um, just the effect that that has on the sound quality as it comes out.
it is hilarious. Um, we spent like a lot of Christmas, uh, just playing with, um, my, uh, baby nephew's, uh, toy that he, he was a little bit interested in. Um, but me and my sister's husband were very interested in because it's really hard to play notes like exactly right. You can get the note like mostly there. Um, and I'm sure some people are like very good at it, but it's very funny to hear songs like the Star Spangled Banner, but just like the notes not quite right or it like bends a little bit. Um, it's very funny. And there, there's some really funny videos of people playing them on YouTube or whatever. If you want to check it out, we could throw one of those in the doobly doo. Uh, they do a cover of Despacito that's very funny. So that brought me <laughs> yes, a lot of joy. We, nice. we absolutely. Hell yeah. Ooh. The magic of sound editing. Nice. Whoa! Uh, I can go if you want, Andy. Sure. Um, so I am going to... Uh, let me set this up a little bit. So in a previous episode to this, uh, our Christmas episode, I uh, mentioned my favorite holiday film that I have never, nor will I ever see, uh, Grandpa for Christmas. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> a Grandpa for Christmas, uh, turns out because I had to look up, uh, the, uh, the trailer for it, which I played in its entirety during the Christmas episode, uh, it turns out that the Grandpa in that, uh, particular movie is played by, uh, Ernest Borgnine, which I have liked Ernest Borgnine in a bunch of stuff. I love Ernest Borgnine. Uh, the Poseidon Adventure was sort of like, really where, like, I sunk my teeth into him, if you know what I mean. Uh, but also, uh, he, uh, did a very notable, uh, episode of The Simpsons. Oh, Warren, I know your dad is in prison, but don't you fret. A special celebrity dad has been arranged for you. But my older brother would like... Sorry, but I'm afraid Ernest Borgnine has already been confirmed. <laughs> I, uh, I'm sure you kids know me best as Sergeant Fatso Judson in From Here to Eternity. And uh, just just really great. But I did find when I was doing research on Ernest Borgnine, which I didn't have to do at all. Like we barely I don't think we mentioned him in the last episode at all, but I took it on myself to do some Ernest Borgnine uh, research. Let me go ahead and play a little video for you guys. To the show show, but real quickly, you're 91 years old. You look fantastic. You look like you're, you're in nice. your late 60s, <laughs> early 70s. What's the secret? I don't dare tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I masturbate a lot. Okay, I think <laughs> so. That, that is uh, Ernest Borgnine uh, on Fox and Fred's leaning over and super loud whispering that his secret to aging is that he masturbates a lot. Doesn't even really try to whisper at all. Oh no, he's definitely like whisper yelling. Like stage, <laughs> stage whispering. That's like, great. And he's like, I'm old. What are they going to do to me? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So, uh, that, just to be clear, he did die in 2012, Aww. but that is a grandpa that I would be happy to get for Christmas. <laughs> hey, an important life lesson for all of us. Yes, don't ever ask yes. Ernest Borgnine live on air <laughs> what his secret to longevity is. Right. Well, I was going to say I'm going to live idea. to be like 190. Oh, hey now. <laughs> 
All right, Andy, Gross. and uh, that leaves it to you. Uh, go ahead and one-up that, if you will. Okay. Um, I will top that by going in a different direction and going more wholesome. I love so, different directions. But also, I would argue right. there's nothing more wholesome than uh, an Ernest Borgnine living uh, very, very long by jerking off. <laughs> right. That is... That is one direction. That's what makes you beautiful. <laughs> okay, anyway. Because that's a band. Yeah, that's a band. Nailed it, man. Yeah. That's anyway. good entertainment. <laughs> so funny. Oh my god, I'm so funny. But what would be really funny anyway. is if it connected back to your precious moment, which is about One Direction. It yes. super does not. Oh, well, it does not yeah. at all. That's what makes you beautiful. But... Um, it does connect to a different musician by the name of Logic. Logic is a rapper. Sure. And Logic produced a song titled 1-800-273-8255. Yes! And that number is the number to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And recently, uh, so the song came out in 2017, and the, a recent study suggests that this song may actually be reducing suicides, may have um, led to hundreds of fewer suicides since its release, which is awesome. And Oh, wait, I've I mean, got one for this. Uh, unlike One Direction, which has caused many suicides because ah, the music is terrible. Got him. I mean, <laughs> nailed it. Some some, pe some people like no, them. but I mean, I would be as if I don't yuck somebody's yum. As an artist, I would be incredibly happy if one suicide was prevented. Didn't they yeah. do a study and yeah, like incredible three hundred thousand peop more people called the suicide hotline than had the previous year? Yeah, twenty six to twenty seven percent increase in calls that year. That's incredible. Um, so great. Yeah. It's, it's tremendous. And this is, you know, one of those things that like, you know, when you, when you have a voice, this is why I get really, uh, I get upset when, uh, when people tell athletes to shut up and dribble or something like that. Because, um, when you have a platform, you can use it to, to do good or to do bad. Something that I always, um, when I was in Boy Scouts, when I was a teenager, that, that, uh, a little something that always stuck with me was, that um you you are a leader you are an example for other people whether or not you care whether or not you want to be whether or not you try to be what what you the the behavior you exhibit will be modeled by people who look up to you that you have no control over and so that's always really kind of stuck with me and and lingered in the back of my head to try to always kind of do try to be the best person I can be with whatever platform I have, which is, you know, one part of the fun of this podcast. And, uh, for someone like logic with the kind of platform that he has to be able to have that kind of impact is just amazing. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Like, I love like it. Thomas DeLong. Right. Is that a member of one direction? No. No. So anyway, with that said, uh, with that said, I really need to come up with a catchphrase. <laughs> Hopefully we gave you something to UFO about, to think about this week. Love you, bye. Bye.
not always great at judging this because we'll find a spicy word or two that I missed later on after editing, but I think this is our first episode where we've ever not had a single swear word throughout the entire episode, and I, for one, think that's f***ing great. Whatever. Okay. Uh, thanks for listening. Patreon, Facebook, Twitter, uh... Regularly scheduled episodes from here on out. We love you. Chill till the next episode. Something for Nathan to edit out later, but I wanted to make sure to mention uh, so that you know a couple things that we're doing is muting our microphones just so that we don't have ambient noise coming in to keep this audio clean. Uh, and turning our video off to try to ease up on the bandwidth a little bit. Gotcha. So I, know, I noticed you out. kind of went away there. So yeah, I've got it on gallery. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it was, we're in the background now. Yeah. It was meant to be a personal insult against you. Larry, so. <laughs> At my age, it's really hard to do that. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough.